1: What a day, Saturday, April 10, 2021. We have a great show for you. John Temple was in a powerful position in Denver, Colorado. He came here in the early 90s and he stayed until The Rocky was finished, a newspaper war that The Rocky could not, did not win. John Temple gives a long, great interview. After Dave Gunders, our troubadour, sings one of my new favorite songs called Every Little Problem. If you think an elephant is a problem, it's a good song. Wait till you hear the song and the discussion. I think you will enjoy it. We all enjoyed Raj Chohan on our televisions. He was a staple at Channel 4 for the better part of a decade. He came with Sean Boyd, his wife. She's still the political reporter over there. But Raj, he went to law school, which entitles him to be in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. It's been too long since we caught up. Raj Chohan. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Now this is interesting. He got to ask me questions for years. As a reporter at Channel 4, Dan is the host of Colorado Inside Out, I was a panelist, subject to him peppering me with questions, and now the role reversal. Raj Chohan, welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge.
2: Hi, Craig. Great to talk to you. Great to be here.
1: Everybody remembers you from Channel 4, but I think a lot of people wonder, well, what happened to Raj? I know what happened. You became eligible to come into the lounge. Tell everybody, When you became an attorney.
2: Sure. So I left the news business, the TV news business, in 2010. That's when I graduated from DU Law School. I had been going to night school there for the four previous years. Passed the bar in 2010 and officially at that point became eligible for Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. I started my practice in business law for a large national law firm. Then I went to the district attorney's office, starting in Weld County and then in Jefferson County. And then I went to work for a large personal injury firm. And then after that, I opened my own firm.
1: Okay. That's all easy for you to say, but just give me your bar number. <laughs> I need your bar number. Supreme Court registration number, please.
2: Yes, 42845.
1: You are in. You are in. A key number in your life is the number four. Channel 4, how long did you work there?
2: Well, I was at Channel 4 for 12 of my 17 years as a TV news reporter. And my wife, Sean Boyd, who I'm sure most people know, has been there You know, for the 10 years that I've been gone and the 17 years prior. So she's been there for almost 30 years.
1: I love it. Workplace romance?
2: It was a workplace romance. In fact, we met back in Grand Rapids, Michigan, And I was a reporter, she was a reporter and a weekend anchor. And we, uh, you know, struck up a romance, I think, in the second or third year of my contract. And after that, she ended up getting the job in Denver. And I stayed back in Grand Rapids, Michigan, to finish out my contract with every intention of just moving to Denver. And as it turned out, the same station offered me a job as well.
1: Now, was this a romance that blossomed in a thousand different places? Or was there that one moment, the story sitting around an assignment desk? How did it happen?
2: You know, we had worked together for probably a year and a half, maybe two years before we even really noticed each other in any kind of romantic way. And oddly enough, we were talking about the Middle East and um, I can't remember specifically what the discussion was, but we were trying to figure out how to write a story. Sean had sort of asked around the room, hey, does anybody have any knowledge or background to some of these issues? And I happened to have some, some knowledge. And so we started talking about it. And there was a connection there. And I want to say that a few weeks later, she asked me to babysit her dog. And maybe a few weeks after that, I think we went out to dinner and it just took off from there.
1: Whoa. So that babysit the dog thing, is that a metaphor or did she really have a dog?
2: (laughs) Yeah. She had a uh, beautiful German shepherd at the time. And in fact, after we became an item, that German shepherd became my backpacking dog for years. And so we would go out on these trips and I took this big, beautiful dog with me that resembled a wolf and kept me feeling safe when I was out in the backcountry by myself.
1: So did Sean make the first move? Hey, will you come over and babysit my German shepherd? That's pretty forward.
2: Yeah, that was a forward move. And I didn't recognize it as a romantic move at the time, although she is admitted after the fact that that's exactly what was going on.
1: Right. I mean, it's her best friend. So. That's
2: right. You don't trust your dog with just anybody. Right.
1: That's a beautiful story. So did you close the deal in Michigan or in Colorado? And why haven't we heard about this story? Just the headline is beautiful. Middle East breaks out in beautiful love affair.
2: (laughs) Right. Yeah. You know, we closed the deal here in Colorado. I would say the deal was probably Closed unofficially in Michigan. And when I got the job here at the same station in Denver, I think we saw that as both a a good sign, a good omen. And, you know, we hitched our wagons together and got married pretty shortly after that.
1: I think it's a good omen for the Middle East and for everybody in America, Denver, certainly. So you guys are uh, transplanted to Colorado. I know you have beautiful children now. Tell everybody about that. And, Is Colorado your home for all time now?
2: I believe it is. I think when we first came out here, Craig, we had it in our minds that we were going to stay for a standard three-year TV contract. And then the plan was supposed to be to head back to where I'm from, Chicago, or alternatively, Detroit, Michigan, where Sean is from. Both cities are close enough to both of our families that it, it would have been a good choice. But as it happens with so many folks, you get out here and you realize how great it is and you decide to stay. And that's what we did. You know, it was just a Colorado's a beautiful place. It's got very tolerable winters and wonderful seasons. And so uh, like so many other transplants, we got here, realized it was just a fantastic place and decided to stay.
1: Right. And I imagine, well, you tell me, The decision for you to become a lawyer, where did that grow out of? Did you have lawyers in your family? Why did you give up what seemed like a great career in broadcasting to take on a job like an attorney?
2: Craig, I had always wanted to be an attorney. I'd always wanted to go to law school. And I took a long, slow walk through my undergraduate and first graduate degree and I was tired of school, and I contemplated back at the time of continuing on and, and just pushing straight through law school. But I was so tired, so exhausted by the years of schooling I'd already gone through that I just wanted to get out and work. And I started doing some radio for the NPR affiliate in DeKalb, Illinois, where I was going to school at Northern Illinois University. And I got to do some reporting, and I think I did a documentary piece on the Balkan War at the time and a prison overcrowding documentary, and I just got bit by the news bug and thought it was fascinating and fun and interesting, and I decided to try to pursue a job, and so I was able to land a gig at a small market TV station in Rockford, Illinois, where I started my TV career, and it took off from there, and it was just such a enjoyable career that I had to put my law school plans off for a while.
1: Did you have role models in the media? Is there somebody who you said, I'd like to be like that guy?
2: Well, I would credit my first news director, a fellow by the name of Lester Graham, who had a fascinating story in his own right. He was a steel worker in Illinois and got laid off multiple times. A guy who had a high school education and uh, was making a fine living as a steel worker, He got laid off enough times that he decided to just go to community college. He got a media degree of some sort and got into radio and became this legendary radio reporter in the upper Midwest there in Illinois and Michigan. And he was the guy who hired me and brought me in and and taught me how to be a reporter. He was a fantastic newsman, super ethical guy, a person who knew how to do it right, the quality of his work inspired me and made me want to continue on and, and pursue bigger and better things in, in the news.
1: I bet he had a great way of telling a story. Isn't that what it's about as a trial lawyer or as a broadcaster? You're making decisions. How are we going to tell this story? Even for this interview, I've thought I wanted to do a definitive Raj Chohan interview. So how do we tell this story? Isn't that the beauty of law and reporting, those sorts of decisions?
2: I think, Craig, the skills are directly translatable. I think early on, and I really learned this in the DA's office, I was able to walk into a courtroom right away and tell a story to the jury. And I felt very comfortable doing that and knew exactly how to do it. And so being able to break down complex, complicated information into a digestible, understandable presentation that can be done in a short period of time is an important skill to have as a trial lawyer. It was certainly an important skill to have as a news reporter. And I found that that was one area in trial law that I never had to struggle with, presenting evidence and information to a jury. And so I've always felt that that ability to be able to connect with people is important. And that's something I'm able to do as a trial lawyer.
1: You also had a great gig at Colorado Inside Out as a host. Now, I say it's great gig. I've done scores of those shows, and I never got paid. I hope you got paid something, because you were hosting for quite a while. What was that experience like?
2: That was my favorite part of the week. During that hour or so that we all got to spend together sitting around that table, hashing out the local and national political issues of the day. Whether I was working as a lawyer or working as a news reporter, being able to do that show was a tremendous amount of fun, intellectually stimulating, a good way to to close out the week. So I'm grateful to have had the opportunity to do that. I ended up giving up that wonderful gig when I decided to become a DA When I went to work for Ken Buck in Weld County, uh, there just wasn't a a way to uh, work for government and to do what a district attorney, a deputy district attorney has to do and still maintain a weekly presence on the air. So I was sad to leave that show behind, but it's, you know, it's in very capable hands by Dominic DiZutti, who does a fantastic job. And, you know, the cast is is just top notch over there and they do tremendous work.
1: Right but we had our show of shows, at least for me. You've probably won a lot of Emmys, but in my studio right now, I'm perched beneath an Emmy that you allowed me to win because you were a great moderator for the Time Travel Edition 1959. I got to shave my mustache, smoke cigarettes, play my father, and it was a special show, and darned if we didn't win an Emmy. How did you feel about it?
2: Well, I felt great. And, you know, frankly, I take the least amount of responsibility for the Emmy win. That was driven by the great people who produced that show, Larry Paget, Dominic Dizzuti, all the folks who work on that crew to to put that atmosphere together to make it feel like the time period it was in. And certainly, the credit goes to the panelists. You know, guys like you who got to really get into character, do the research, make the show run. And and
1: I was playing my father. I've been doing the research my whole life. And thank God my dad got to watch it and he didn't hate it. So I took that as a compliment.
2: Yeah, well, you did a wonderful job. But I smoked
1: uh, about 12 cigarettes in a half hour show. But he did used to smoke a lot. He quit. Thank God, when he had grandchildren.
2: Yeah, I and I understand that as well. I quit smoking when I had kids, but and I remember that episode, and I remember how smoky it was, and I remember thinking, Ah, we're probably in violation of some city codes and maybe some OSHA things, but uh, ah, what the heck? It was nineteen fifty
1: nine. That's what men did,
2: right? That's that's right. Uh, you know, it it is so funny when you look at popular media from that era. Everybody is smoking, right? Everybody's smoking you know one thing after another. I mean, people can't even do a a talk show without you know a couple of cigarettes going, and so that was just the the way it was back then,
1: right, and we recreated it, and you were the Johnny Carson or the Jack Parr. you did a masterful <laughs> job. What was your character? Do you remember you know
2: i I don't remember off the top of my head
1: because you won so many awards, you played so many different parts for me, it's special, but I was Kevin Flynn, David Kopel, Danny Newsom, and Patty Calhoun. Right. I think.
3: Yeah. Maybe Danny.
1: Yep. Went. I don't think Danny was in it. I don't think I could win an Emmy with Danny because we used to clash. <laughs> you remember that? Oh,
2: I man. do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those were, you know, those were the kind of discussions that made Colorado Inside Out so much fun. Right. When it. You know, when people would, uh, you know, the discussion would get heated and uh, people would start going, you know, and then it would move off script. And then sometimes, right, Craig, the best discussions were happening either immediately before or immediately after the show started started or ended. So, you know, it was a wonderful show to work on and it was great to work with you and the others on that show. And I really look back on it fondly.
1: You brought up Ken Buck. I'm reminded that you went to the Weld County DA's office up there in Greeley, and I know that Jenna Ellis worked for Ken Buck. It was an interesting time up there in Greeley, Colorado, but what do I know? I wasn't up there. Tell us about your experience working for Ken Buck and the Weld County DA's office, and did you have any crossover with Jenna Ellis?
2: That's an interesting question, Craig. I did have some brief crossover with Jenna Ellis. In fact, as she was leaving the position there, I was hired in to take over that position. And so even though we didn't work together directly, I knew of her and she worked briefly as a defense attorney in Greeley after she left the DA's office. And I did work on a couple of cases opposite her while she was doing that work. So I I did have some contact with her. As for Ken Buck and the DA's office, I will say that that job in Weld County was one of the best jobs that I have ever had. And for a deputy district attorney to be able to walk into an environment like that and to be able to work early in your career on very serious cases, because the portfolio of violent crime relative to the number of DA positions they had allowed young district attorneys to quickly move into very serious cases. And so the experience that I got there was tremendous. The attorneys that I worked with there were fantastic. And I really enjoyed working for Ken Buck and Michael Rourke and the other chiefs and supervisors there. It's really a a fantastic shop. And I, uh, you know, fondly, fondly recall my time there.
1: And Michael Rourke, the current DA, what was his role back when you were working there?
2: Well, he did a lot of running the day-to-day show there in the DA's office because Ken was dealing with some health issues for part of the time, and then he was running for Senate for a period of time. And so Mike was kind of the steady presence during that period of time, and that's why it was a natural transition for him to become the next DA there.
1: Well, that's fantastic. I know Ken Buck used to play a lawyer's league and law enforcement basketball against him. But let's go back to Jenna Ellis, because Ken Buck is controversial. So is Jenna Ellis. You're praising Ken Buck. There's some controversy about Jenna Ellis when she was a prosecutor there. Did she get fired from the Weld County DA's office? Did she do something wrong or did she leave of her own volition? What can you tell us?
2: Well, all I can tell you is what was out there in the public record. I think the Colorado Sun did a piece on it in which they had corded some records indicating that, uh, that Jenna had been terminated from her position at the DA's office for performance reasons. I don't really have anything to add to that. I'm not sure what the performance issues were. I'm not sure specifically what the reasons were for her leaving that position. But I know she wasn't there for very long.
1: Have you had much contact with her? I sure did in the radio business. Did you encounter her at all?
2: outside of my brief contacts with her as she was a defense attorney in Greeley I have not had any further contact with her i will say she was perfectly pleasant to work with she knew what she was doing in the criminal defense realm and i never had a a problem professionally or personally with her and the fact that she was able to parlay her situation from you know a, a county court traffic deputy to Uh, appearing with the president as, I guess, part of the elite strike force, it's a testament to her, to her ability to parlay her situations and and create an opportunity for herself. And so we can certainly talk about, you know, whether she's on the right side of history and some of the decisions she made and, and some of the things that she said. But I certainly give her credit for figuring a way out to improve her situation, leverage what she had done in the past and create a nice opportunity for herself.
1: See, I think that's fascinating because I had countless pleasant experiences with her, but I account her blameworthy for her part in Trump's big lie. And she's an attorney. She had choices to make. And to me, people who backed that big lie sold out, sold out our country, sold out our children because I don't think that's compatible with a good America, Trumpism and all of that. How do you feel about that?
2: I tend to agree, Craig. I think that the damage that was done to our democracy during these past four years will take many, many years to recover from. I think the polarization of America has become dangerous. I think we've got a diminished Republican Party that is completely lost its way, has moved away from traditional values of conservatism, fiscal conservatism, a party that would have been about the kinds of things that that should have rejected the messages that were coming from President Trump with regard to race baiting, polarization, creating a Narrative that simply was not true with regard to how elections were being operated. And democracy is a fragile thing. We think of it as something that's very robust and very strong, but it is something, as we learned in this election cycle, that could be damaged quite seriously and very easily. And you realize in hindsight that it's only because people of goodwill on both sides of the aisle have held the democracy together through decisions of self-sacrifice, through decisions of standing up and being ethical and moral in the face of maybe a public overture or a public zeitgeist that wanted to go in a different direction. It's only because of courageous people who've stood the line and held democracy together in trying times that we still have it. And we got a stress test this time. And we're still dealing with the fallout from it. Thankfully, it held. But you could imagine scenarios where had less scrupulous people in some of our state governments in positions to be able to make decisions that could have been helpful to President Trump when he was shopping his lie around.
1: Brad Rappensberger, Secretary of State in Georgia. Brian Kemp, the governor in Georgia, stood up to Trump. Raffensburger more than Kemp, he got that call, which I think was a criminal call. But now the Georgia legislature, in response to the big lie, go along with it, strip Raffensburger of power with their new legislation, and now corporations and Major League Baseball, they've reacted and said, no, we connect the dots, the big lie, we don't go for it. It's anti-democracy. It's just what Raj Chohan said. And we're gonna move the game to Denver and you gotta make some changes. And I think that's great. I think that's America.
2: Yeah, Brad Raffensberger is an American hero. He will go down in history as such. And had it not been for him and people like him, we might have seen something that would have signaled the end of the American democratic experience in this country. It it would have been a, a much different looking country had the coup been allowed to happen. And it almost it, it, it came far too close, I think, for most people of good conscience to tolerate. And hopefully we learn something from this. But the problem is, as you mentioned, the big lie is still out there and there are still millions of people who believe it, who believe this election was stolen. And that's right. a dangerous situation. And,
1: and that it was stolen in cities like Atlanta and Detroit and Philadelphia and every black voting district. And race is a big part of this. I think Donald Trump is racist. I had Spencer Haywood on my show and I said, I think Donald Trump is racist. And he said, you think? Anyway, I, I just, for a while there, I don't like to label people as racist. I, I expect you're the same way. We were both prosecutors. You don't make an accusation like that lightly. But the racism involved in the big lie is just manifest to me. But let me ask you, Raj, you're darker skinned than most. I, I don't know how you label yourself or how you feel about race, but I bet you've thought a lot about it.
2: Yeah, sure. I'm an Indian-American, and I have brown skin, and obviously a Southeast Asian name. And my full name is Rajkumar Shohan. And so, yeah, so race is certainly an element in my life. But my feeling on race has always been that most people will give just about anybody a chance. And if that person proves to be a good person, proves to be a hard worker— Usually, race—you know—thoughts about race tend to fall away if if somebody's got a predisposition that way. And we have, you know, racial bias and racial discrimination in this country, but we also have a country that brown-skinned people like myself are working really hard to get into because there's a recognition that there's great opportunity here. So I think this is still a very desirable place to come. And yeah, we we are reckoning with our our racial past as as we have been for many decades and we've had another you know we've gone through another series of self reckoning moments here where the debate is front and center and the discussion needs to be ongoing and needs to occur and so it was disheartening to see a president who is a transactional moralist is somebody who saw an opportunity here to uh, win political game by, you know, mobilizing Reagan Democrats, but on steroids and then playing, you know, the dog whistle, racist messages to a particular crowd, uh, kind of a wink and nod to white nationalists and white supremacists, which you would never think would would have become a force in mainstream politics ever again. But, But here it was. That's what we were living through in the four years of the Trump presidency. And I think You know, this is an issue that is going to haunt the Republican Party for a while because they've got to figure out a way in the future. If they're going to be a viable political force going forward, they have to figure out a way to win again. And they just don't have the numbers if they're going to, if the strategy is to essentially wink and nod to white nationalism, to decry immigration and to uh, you know play the culture wars and make strategies based on racial divisiveness because eventually if if republicans if the republican party is going to be viable again and i don't mean just in safe district local elections or statewide elections but on the national stage they're going to have to figure out a way to appeal with their message of individual self-determinism of fiscal restraint, of you know, opportunity and, and fairness and individualism, they're going to have to tailor that message to somebody other than just a base of people who have been divided based on race. In other words, the Re- Republicans are going to have to grow their Hispanic and, and Black and Asian ranks in order to be a viable party in the future. And this low-end game of you know, running to the lowest common denominator may work in primary races for certain candidates in certain districts, but it's not going to be a viable strategy on a national level. And that's what the Republican Party needs to be thinking about going forward, because the numbers don't get better for them as the decades go by. There's going to be more brown people here, not less. And, you know, Republicans have have some good messages that that they would be used a to.
1: They used to. Yeah, they now used it's to. just the Trump party. And you know what? That's a problem. Don't you think it's a problem that still exists? How is Trumpism ever going to end? Well, it's going to end
2: with a series of election losses. It's going to end, you know, probably when Trump.
1: Well, well, why Why is it not ending with some prosecutions? How long were you a prosecutor, Raj?
2: I was a prosecutor for five years and certainly some of it's going to end with prosecutions, Craig, but the playbook has now been established. And so, to the extent that you know that playbook allows politicians to engage in self-preservation, even if it's not good for the party as a whole, my guess is there's still going to be pages from that playbook that get used. and there's still a viable base of folks out there who the Trumpism message resonates with, and so it's going to be effective for a while. However, It's not an enduring strategy for national success. And as Republicans continue to lose seats in the House and Senate, they're going to have to modify the strategy. As Trumpism becomes less effective by virtue of survival, the Republican Party is going to have to move away from it. And so I think that's going to happen. I think it's going to happen in the next couple of years. But, you know, I will tell you, I did not see Trump coming when in 2016, when I had conversations with, with friends about the viability of certain candidates, Trump wasn't even on my mind as a possibility, uh, as somebody who could win the primary and make a credible run uh, for the presidency.
1: So if, if I could summarize just that, that you didn't think he was a problem, and to the extent he was, it was a little problem.
2: Yeah, I don't think a lot of people saw Trump coming on in the way that he did. I'll tell you what, though, my wife did. So my wife is from Michigan and back in those early days, you know, in the run up to the 2016 election, she had told me that something was going on in the Midwest that, you know, from her contacts with family and friends in Michigan, something was happening there that they hadn't seen before. Trump was getting a foothold in those communities. He was resonating with working class Rust Belt Democrats.
1: Didn't George Wallace do sort of get up in Michigan? Isn't there a constituency for that racist crap up there? You know, I don't I don't know
2: about that. I, I lived in Michigan and I love Michigan. It's some of the best things in my life happened in Michigan. But I will tell you, when I was there, you know, they do have this independent militia, you know, movement out there. And I remember that while I was reporting out there, I had started making some ties and connections to various militia folks to do my work, to do my journalism. And there is a anti-government strain, a thread of sentiment out there. and
1: Full of intimidation tactics too, right? Then you have to worry a little about that. And it's what they do now with the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers. Donald Trump is like a mob boss. He's based on intimidation. That's another reason why the Republicans can't break away.
2: Right. Yeah. He's a cult of personality, right? So he is an inspirer in chief, you know, to these unruly elements. And what I wanted to just sort of finish up on is what, what happened in Michigan with Gretchen Whitmer and the storming of the, the Capitol there and protesters, I guess, walking around with firearms and, and creating a very intimidating presence I had never seen anything like that during my time in Michigan, and uh, it's certainly been a, a while since I've lived there, but it's still a state that I'm very fond of and have great memories of, and uh, that was shocking to me. That kind of development, the fact that people were emboldened by our president to engage in the kind of conduct that, you know, ultimately led to a a, a credible Conspiracy sure. to try to kidnap the governor
1: there, uh, so right. I think my castigation of Michigan, and maybe I've spent two or three days there in my in my whole life, but I did cover the Oklahoma City bombing trial, and that was the Michigan militia, and a lot of that crap was. was there, and it was the same white supremacy crap that has caused problems throughout many civilizations and I like calling it out. And they also couple it with weaponry. And we just saw that again in Colorado before we go. And I really appreciate the time you've given me, Raj. Finish up on what you were saying, but everybody wants to know what you think about what happened in our community, more your community in Boulder.
2: Yeah, I can't believe it happened again. I live maybe three, four miles from that King Supers. It's not one that I frequent on a regular basis, but uh, I've certainly been there and I've been to other stores in that same shopping plaza. And I I just can't believe it. And it's my heart is uh, aching and I I feel sick about it. And I can't believe it happened again. And yet another side of me uh, starts to become numb to it. We've had so many of these not only in our country but but here in Colorado and it seems uh, every couple of years we're talking about another one. And I'm not sure what the what the answer is for that.
1: An assault weapon ban? Yeah it's, that, it's for starters. And then Biden has asked for that special grip that the killer used in Boulder to be outlawed. I would do things like that.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a uh, it's certainly a start. It's a difficult, uh, you know, I've got some former military experience and, you know, I've used the M-16. There's a reason why the M-16 is a combat weapon. And the AR-15, of course, is the civilian version. And it's the it's the weapon of choice uh, for mass shooters. And so, you know, the question is, what do you do about it? You know, you hear about, you know, national overtures from the Biden administration about trying to remove the, the ban on lawsuits against firearms manufacturers? You know, is that is that a possible option? Um,
1: I love that one. Can I just say as a plaintiff's lawyer, you got to be <laughs> with me. I mean, why should they have immunity?
2: Yeah. Uh, you know, these cases would still be very difficult to prove, even if right. they, they didn't have immunity. And so it, it would still be a lot to take on. But there's got to be something. There's some reason why we have so many shootings here in this country mass shootings and firearm deaths that are completely disproportionate to the populations of other major first world countries and so you know clearly we have a problem here and it needs to be taken seriously and you know the the gun lobby you know as successful as they've been over the years i i think it you know most reasonable people can look at our gun laws and say we need to engage in some kind of reasonable measured gun control here that really focuses on, on some of the, the key issues. Right.
1: And Biden is being measured. And I have a lot of great guests on. I had Steve Woodrow in Craig's lawyer's lounge. He's a smart state rep from Denver. And he, I'm not going to steal his line. If more guns was the answer, then we wouldn't have a problem. Right. <laughs> I mean, we know that's not the answer.
2: Right. I I mean, look, there's got to be some reasonable middle ground, right? We have a nation that, you know, we have a Second Amendment in our Constitution and we've got Supreme Court case law that says that means individuals have the right to maintain and own firearms. And so there's got to be some middle ground that allows people to own guns and yet you know provides at least some level of protection.
1: Or we could pack the court, have a little, you know, 7-6 ruling the other way.
2: So, Craig, if we do that, right, so eventually we're going to have, what, what 100 Supreme Court justices because the. That's good you know, for time...
1: lawyers. You're a lawyer. <laughs> I'm a lawyer. Why not give more <laughs> jobs for lawyers?
2: Right. You know, but every time that, you know, every time the, the party power you know, base switches, we, you know, everybody would be packing the court from here on forward. And so I don't know that that's the a good option. Uh, I know people are talking about it. I'm sure they I'm sure Democrats love to talk about that right now. They They wouldn't love it so much. Yeah, I'm I'm sure. But, you know, you have to remember that uh, what's good for you now might be bad for you later. And so it's a difficult terrain to move into. And it may happen. It may happen. But uh, it's going to set a problematic precedent,
1: I think. Well, here's the nice thing. I'm in the middle. I mean, my whole life, sometimes, wouldn't you say I'm hard to categorize as conservative or liberal? You had me on a lot of panels, right?
2: Yeah, sure. I think, um, you know, in the early days, I probably thought you were more liberal, and then I think you became more conservative over time. And so I think you are hard to categorize.
1: And now it's easy, because to me, the political lines are drawn are you disgusted by Trump or can you go along with that crap? I'm disgusted by him and I don't want it to come back.
2: Well, I share your thoughts. I share your thoughts.
1: We're on the same side now because don't you agree that that's kind of where our politics are right now?
2: Yeah. Unfortunately, that's where we are. We are in a situation where we don't really have a Republican Party right now. We've got a, uh, a populist cult of personality still kind of running the show there. And, uh, you know, until the Republican Party becomes a, a principled party of ideas again, um, you know, we really only have one major party in this country.
1: Well, you are super smart. I know you're a great dad, great husband. You've spoke lovingly about Sean, but her making the first move with that dog story, you'll have to give me the feedback and tell her that she's always welcome. But it was overdue to get you into Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, and I hope you had a good time.
2: Yeah, it was a lot of fun, Craig. I always appreciate the
1: invitation. My pleasure. Raj Chohan, have a good weekend. We'll see you, Craig. Bye. uh, llc.com.
0: Now back to The Fred Silverman Show.
1: Wow. As I live and breathe, it's my troubadour, our troubadour, Dave Gunders, in the flesh, in my home studio. Welcome back.
3: Good to be here,
1: Craig. It really is over when we get down to meeting in person. I hope it didn't take you long to get over here.
3: No. It was, it was a little bit of a rough commute.
1: Yes, I know, because every once in a while, there's a car that goes by between your house and mine. Not that often, though.
3: So I avoided him.
1: Way to go. Let me tell you, the song you came up with this week, it's another one I never heard about, and I think the words are profound and ideally suited to our times. (laughs)
3: Last night I hear the doorbell ring I peer outside and I don't see nothing Scratch my head and open the door Elephant sitting on my front porch Kind of strange Every little problem Said you must be crazy, or I'm still drunk. He said, Make room, man. I like the upper bunk. I'm crying, no way, man, gonna break my bed. I seen a heavy and things running through your head. He's right. Every little problem. little too long Every little problem it Ain't little too long Now I hear him snoring in the bunk above I lie here sweating and I pray for luck Cause I got me an elephant he won't leave There's a ton of things weighing down on me Let's go! Every little problem Ain't a little too long Every little problem Ain't a little too long He's here in the daytime He's up in the nighttime Problems on my house. Can I be free? Well, last I see now. I understand. I pull my head up from the sand. I'm gonna drop everything, gonna get on the stick And face every little problem for it gets too big. Let's go Every little problem Ain't little too long Every little problem Ain't a little too long Every little problem Ain't a little too long Every little problem
1: My gosh, that song was just too good. I have to find out a little more from our troubadour. Like, who was that crazy good fiddle player?
3: My fiddle player is Johnny Neal. Hi there, Johnny. In fact, he's coming out tomorrow. I've got a new batch of songs Johnny's going to play on, and uh, I'll get to see him for the first time in a couple of years. Johnny Neal.
1: While that song was playing, tell Johnny that I think we do have an ED commercial. And I know where you should get part of the charity from the money you're going to get from this song getting real popular. Do you know where?
3: Where shall we send that money? To
1: some Jewish charity, because I know where you got the idea for the elephant. Where is it from? Well, when we had the Passover Seder here yeah. at the Midway Point post-service, we start singing a song that starts with E-L, like elephant. Okay. But it's Eliyahu. Okay. Elijah, the great prophet, right? Yes. And what,
3: what happens? Great name for the elephant. Well, Elijah is said to uh, uh, be wandering about during Passover and looking for a place to come in and, and drink wine with right. us. Yeah. And
1: I'm surely not the only Jewish patriarch who goes and rings the doorbell for the kids to think that somebody's there, the dogs start barking. And it's Elijah on the front porch coming right into the house like this elephant in your song.
3: Okay, I'll go with that.
1: So when you tithe, you'll know where to tithe it to, okay? Because you're going right. to get rich on one of these songs. I just know what Dave Gunders.
3: I wouldn't hold my breath on that, but that's okay too.
1: You know what? You are a genius when it comes to lyrics, musicality. I don't know how these things come to you, but it's brilliant, thank you. Well, it's been almost 40 years that I've been a lawyer, graduated CU Law in 1981 and began immediately. I am now with the law firm of Springer and Steinberg. Jeff Springer, a renowned civil attorney, one of the best in America. Harvey Steinberg, preeminent criminal defense attorney. We do it all at Springer and Steinberg, way over a dozen lawyers. If you need legal help, call me, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig. We can deal with your legal situation and make it better. Thank you. If I had to guess, that's one of the biggest topics that must come up in your practice. How can I provide for my kids' education, my grandchild's education? And aren't there some tax benefits to doing it certain ways, not others?
5: There can be. Depending on how you structure a trust, you can get a tax break on your taxes now. You can get a tax break on any estate tax in the future. So let's say that Donald Sturm has $2 billion, which I don't know how much he's worth now. You know, it's a lot. Let's say he's got $2 billion and he decides to donate all $2 billion to some sort of charities, whether it be the University of Denver School of Law or something like that. Well, if you have, you know, the estate tax limit is $11.7 million. So anything above $11 million would be taxed as an estate. So that would mean if he's got $2 billion and, you know, 40% estate tax, there's it'd be something like, you know, $800 million worth of estate tax. He says, well, I don't want to pay that. So I'm going to donate all of it to charitable causes. Well, a donation to a charitable cause is going to be exempt from the estate tax. So then he wouldn't have to pay any estate tax. You know, I don't know if he's that charitably minded. And there's, there's certainly a lot of other sophisticated techniques to use to get around estate taxes, but if you're charitably inclined, it certainly can give you quite a tax break, either from an estate tax perspective or an income tax perspective, depending on how you'd structure things.
1: It's all about planning. That's why I'm so glad I discovered you, Michael, and I get nothing but great feedback. I feel good about sending people your way because it means they can check that off their box of what needs to be done, and they need a steady, reliable person like you, give out your contact information one more time.
5: Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. That's how you get a hold of me. I mean, my my website is michaelbaileylawllc.com. And again, that's michaelbaileylawllc.com. You can get a hold of me that way too.
0: Now, back to the Craig Silverman Show.
1: This is thrilling. John Temple was the grand poobah at the Rocky Mountain <laughs> News. I loved the Rocky Mountain News; grew up with it, and I loved the way they did things. We'll talk about that with John Temple. But I was privileged to be at Road of Shalom Synagogue in Denver when. John Temple blew me away with a speech about his background. We are going to save that for last with your permission, John Temple. Welcome back to the
6: show. Thanks so much, Craig. I'm happy to talk about anything, and I appreciate your kind words. And I loved the Rocky, too, and I loved my time in Denver. So it's great to talk to you and maybe connect with some old friends there.
1: Tell everybody, what were the years of your time in Denver?
6: I came to Denver in 1992 to be the metro editor, which meant I was responsible for the local news report in the Rocky, which was the core of the newspaper. And I was there until 2009 when the Rocky closed in February of that year. I was the editor, president and publisher, and I played the leading role at the Rocky for 11 years. And that was a very sad and traumatic time. Of course, that was the Great Recession. and very tough economic times, and you know we lost a lot. I lost a lot, and I, I feel like, I think the city lost a lot too at the time. It was a hard period.
1: Now, as I recall, and I'll never forget your speech at Rodim Shloman. We will yeah. get to it. But you grew up in British Columbia, Canada, right?
6: I did. I grew up in Vancouver. I was a newspaper carrier as a boy. I delivered the morning paper so I could play sports after school. And so that meant getting up in the dark and riding my bike with a carrier. You know, we used to have baskets on the front of our bikes, and we used to carry the paper and fold them and throw them onto the porches.
1: What sports did you like?
6: I loved soccer. I played rugby, basketball in high school, baseball. So we played a lot of sports, um, you know, pretty much the same. You know, played tennis as a kid. But in school, you know, baseball, basketball, soccer, rugby were the, and track, I did track too.
1: Sounds like America, but with the football missing.
6: Right, that's right. We didn't play football.
1: And so tell us about your path toward becoming the exceptional journalist you became.
6: Oh, that's really nice of you to say That's. I mean, it's a long story, but I would just say that, you know, I always loved reading and the news and, and but especially reading as a kid. And I took a very circuitous path to being a journalist and I did a number of other things. I actually studied, I became a builder and I studied architecture. And it was only when I was studying architecture that, and I started a newspaper in the architecture school that I realized that my real passion was writing and journalism, not drawing buildings. But I feel like all that life experience prepared me for journalism, and I was lucky enough to be able to go to Northwestern University for a graduate degree, and it was a wonderful training ground, and that led to me being able to have a journalistic career that has been, you know, very fulfilling in so many respects.
1: We heard about you last week when I interviewed Mike Litwin, and he said he's lived in every time zone. I imagine (laughs) you have too in America, anyway.
6: I have. That's a good point. I have lived in every time zone, including Hawaii, because after the Rocky closed, I was lucky enough to join forces with Piero Midyar, the founder of eBay, who lives in Honolulu, and wanted to start a local news operation, an online-only news operation. And we had a lot of ideas. And we created something called Honolulu Civil Beat, which exists to this day, and has grown dramatically. So I was very lucky that, from the death of the Rocky and the sadness that that involved and the loss, I was able to create something new from the ground up and to be there at the foundation of, of something new that still exists today. So, so I've lived in Hawaii. I've lived in D.C. You know, Chicago and the mountain zone as well in denver so and and albuquerque and santa fe so yep i've been in all the time zones i've i've moved around a bit
1: let's touch on dc cuz those were probably some pretty formative years for you
6: well dc was a kind of an extraordinary period actually because i went from hawaii to washington dc where i became the managing editor of the washington post in charge of the digital part of the newsroom, as well as all the sections serving local readers. And this was in the final period of the Graham family ownership of the paper. And, you know, I really admire the family and what they did there. But these were very tough times of the decline of the newspaper industry and before Jeff Bezos bought The Post. It was a great experience. I mean incredibly talented people, really a very demanding environment, and friends to this day. But it was it was very tough. And after having closed the rocky, I never wanted to be in a declining environment again. And I ultimately chose to leave the post, and that's how I ended up in California because I went to Stanford University where I was given a senior fellowship and I worked on something that I cared about, I felt was really essential to the industry at the time, which was basically mobile news, personalized mobile news. And I I did a research project and worked with others. And that actually led me into a completely different path, which I'll be happy to tell you about.
1: It's cool. You're in one of my favorite cities, San Francisco. You live right within the city borders, I do believe. How long has that been, and what is it actually like to live in the city by the bay?
6: So I've lived in San Francisco for seven years now, and it's a wonderful city to live in. I mean, it's incredibly beautiful. This is an extraordinary physical location. I mean, with the open ocean, the bay, the hills, the mountains, the beaches, and the sort of diversity of the city. And I know people may complain that the charm of the city has been lost or it's too expensive or too techy or too many homeless people and everything, but it's a very dynamic, beautiful place. And it's so rich and complex and interesting. And I love living here. I love living in California. It's got its challenges. It's expensive. But we feel very lucky to live here. And I love the weather. I mean, I was able to go out for a run this morning with, you know, shorts and a T-shirt. And I can do that all year round. And I love that. And It's a great place to live. And I think it's one of America's great cities, you know, and we've been enjoying it.
1: It's spectacular. I mean, it's one of those cities where when a Denverite like me, we visit, we think, wow, I wonder what it's like to live here. You think that maybe about. Las Vegas or New York City. And I did have the privilege of living in Boulder County three years going to CU Law School. And San Francisco is beautiful, but you know Boulder is a special place nestled by the Rocky Mountains. And I know it touched you. I heard you talk about it with Brian Stelter on Reliable Sources, the massacre at the Boulder King Supers. What went through your mind, John Temple?
6: Well, you're absolutely right about Boulder. It's an incredibly beautiful community. It's a kind of an extraordinary place, and it had a long history for my family because even my grandparents loved Boulder, and they loved to go there, So, and we had old family friends there, so I always felt a special affection for Boulder, and we were just devastated when the latest shooting in, in Boulder, and, you know, as someone who went through Columbine, as an editor and as a parent, as a resident of the community, that was a very formative event for me and it shaped a a lot. And I lived with it for a long time and in many ways I still live with it. And when I hear about something like the Boulder shooting, I feel like I relive it and I'm so sorrowful for the community, the people going through it, and frankly for the journalists, because it's so frustrating for us as journalists to seem to go through an endlessly repetitive cycle of coverage that somehow little seems to change, and we don't seem to learn much as a society, and we've sort of opened a door to a madness where I don't think we know yet the motive of this particular person, but the devastation he's wrought is, you know, unimaginable. And I find it really difficult to turn to it too much, but I definitely have been thinking a lot about it and and about what we've learned. I I was thinking about one thing, you know, Craig, we're frustrated by sometimes how little we learn, but one thing, the officer who died in the, King Supers. Officer Talley. Officer Talley. His bravery, his courage in entering the store, I mean, he clearly, you know, saved lives and, and it was an extraordinary act. And it was very different from Columbine. And one lesson I think we've learned from Columbine and that police have learned is that you cannot wait and just seal off the scene, that it's too dangerous, that while there's a terrible cost to the officer involved in losing his life, many, many more lives could have been lost in this case. So there was an example of a change in policy and practice but from Columbine on to King Supers. I just wish we never had to go through anything right. like this.
1: And not to quibble about the facts. But there yep. has been some new reporting, one at his funeral. The chief said that after officer tally got shot, nobody else did, which is fascinating, But some people are saying the Boulder police held back, and they did surround oh. the building and call the guy out and somehow it led to his surrender so I'm not sure what the lessons are. We will debrief it, but it's sad, it's too commonplace but. Could this be a tipping point? Joe Biden just dressed the nation. He calls yeah. for a banning of assault weapons. I've been involved in this fight for a long time. And it occurs to me, John Temple, you arrive in Denver 92. The very next summer, we had this summer of violence, 1993. I was in the DA's office then prosecuting a lot of the crimes. And then Ultimately, we took on the NRA in a special session that year. So could it be a tipping point in America, what happened in Boulder? Everybody knows, wow, if it happened in Boulder, it could happen in San Francisco, it could happen anywhere. And I think that maybe we'll hit a tipping point. Look how opposed people were to gay marriage and stuff. Then we run into the Supreme Court, the Heller decision. But Joe Biden thinks there's a way around that. Do you?
6: Well, that's a great question. I mean, you know, I remember meeting you when you were at the DA's office and you really were at the forefront, you and working with Bill Ritter and... and
1: Well, you know, Felix Sparks was part of it. And there's a great new article out. I'm going to send it to you. It came out today about Felix Sparks taking on the NRA with Ritter, myself. Roy Romer got real involved and. Probably the Rocky Mountain News had a lot to say about it too.
6: It did. You know, I'm more skeptical about what's possible and I understand why in Colorado it may feel that Boulder could be a tipping point, but what I worry is is that during the pandemic, it's such an overwhelming and pervasive and uh, massive event that it's almost hard for anything else to have oxygen, and when you have the pandemic combined with the economic crisis that it's caused for so many people, and then racial injustice and the kind of exposure of the deep problems that persist in our society, I think it's very hard for any other issues to gain the kind of momentum that might be necessary because these, these three other issues are just so dominant right now in terms of the attention of the nation. That isn't to say that, you know, President Biden can't have an influence, and I, and I think he will. But, you know, Craig, one of the lessons that I learned from Columbine, and, and you may not agree with this, but I didn't believe in copycats before Columbine, I didn't understand that once somebody saw sort of an aberrant behavior, it sort of opened the door to others pursuing the same kind of thing. But I now believe that once doors of sort of immorality and insanity are open, they're very, very difficult to close. And I think that happened at columbine when the whole nation was riveted to what was then a cable news story not an internet story and it seems to me that the small tiny percentage of the population that is capable of going off and and causing this kind of devastation somehow has been emboldened or permitted to act in ways that would have been much, much more unthinkable previously. I may be wrong, but I just feel that a door has been opened that's very, very hard to close. Right, but and you,
1: you closed the door in California to assault weapons, and it seems to me that this kind of attack is less likely at a Ralph's in San Francisco than in Colorado, where assault weapons can be purchased in Arbatta so i
6: think I think you're right i mean I, I i about that i I think you're right, and the whole you know the we had a temporary assault weapon ban federally for what ten years, and right. then it was allowed to be reinstated it, it i mean it, 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 it the sale was a— right it's it sunset yeah i'm sorry and and that's just so outrageous, you know, in this defense of that kind of availability of those kinds of weapons in my view makes no sense and is and if we can close those kinds of things i think those will be really really positive steps because none of us want to live in a world where this is the reality and we can't do anything about it it's you know we're fearing our children going to school or the grocery store
1: and I bet you get asked this a lot because of your connection to Colorado. Why Colorado? Why does it keep happening here? The Aurora Theater Massacre, yeah. Columbine, now the Boulder King Supers, lots of other mass murders here. What do you answer people when they ask you that?
6: I have some feelings about that. One is the gun culture. You know, it's historically been a it's the West, and weapons have been a, an important part of rural life. I mean, I don't view that in a bad way. I mean that that it was a so weapons were a very acceptable. But I think the principal reason and the difference might be that it's a more transient place than many others, like that I've lived. You know, I think about I've never lived in Pennsylvania, but I think of Pennsylvania as this very sort of like stable. You know, population doesn't move around as much. But Colorado is this constantly evolving, changing place. And people become either disconnected or the families become disconnected. There's just something about the isolation of being between, I call it between being Chicago and L.A. You know, I know this is not a satisfying answer, but that's the only answer I can come up with, that there's something about, the demographics and the rootlessness maybe is the way of putting it that may have some impact in Colorado.
1: That's fascinating. Still, don't you think Colorado's a great place to live? Obviously, you prefer San Fran right now. But when people say, hey, I'm contemplating a move to Colorado, what do you tell them?
6: Absolutely. I tell them it's a great place to live. I loved living in Colorado. We raised our children in Colorado. We met so many great people and made so many friends. And one thing I think is important about Colorado is how you can become part of the community. I was never rejected because I wasn't from there or that I didn't hadn't gone to a certain high school or you know, I didn't find it to have sort of like a limited sort of in society kind of thing that you had to, even though, and I was a journalist and, and ultimately had a, a somewhat prominent position, but I just, I found it a very welcoming place. And I tell people like Boulder, I mean, if you ask me, like, what are some of the nicest places to live in the United States? I mean, I put Colorado and, and Boulder on that map. One thing I can tell you at my age, I'm now almost 68, I do like not shoveling snow. I do like being able to ride my bike like year-round without gearing up. So I, I am enjoying, and I think I was spoiled by Hawaii. I got to tell you, I, I really loved living in Hawaii. And I, I remember Gene Amol in his final years going to Hawaii with his family, taking his family to Hawaii. Gene was the columnist for the Rocky Mountain News. And, I remember him telling me he was in his 70s at the time. He said, "I just wish I had gone to Hawaii earlier and and enjoyed some of this." I remember him looking out at the whales and everything. And you know, I feel privileged to have lived many places. I'm maybe one of those rootless people that, you know, I've seen so many aspects of the United States, and it's such an amazing country. And I, I like living here now, and I like the climate, and my wife is very happy here, which is super important. And but it was a great place to live and I try to stay involved I'm involved with the Colorado Media Project I've been trying to assist sort of the vitalization and maintenance of local news in Colorado and I still feel a connection and and try to contribute based on my experience as a journalist and and especially doing different kinds of startups how I can help the news ecosystem of Colorado because I think one benefit of living in Colorado compared to California is the size. Colorado is so much more coherent, and it's so much, I think, easier to get things done in some ways in Colorado. It's a very good experimental ground to, for legislation, for societal changes. It's an extraordinary place.
1: It is even for natives like me, fourth generation Denverites. So I take pride in that. And there are some people who are rooted here. I like to go to historic events. I went to the groundbreaking at Coors Field. That was magnificent. I also went today, they named Koufax and Elati that block Gene Amol Way. The Rocky was right there on that block. I went to the ceremony and then a few years later. It became the jail building, which is kind of ironic. <laughs> thank God Gene Amel didn't have to witness that. In any event, Tustin Amel, his great daughter, who's a journalist. But yeah. let's go back to Coorsfield, because it's the talk of the town. Major League All-Star game coming to Denver. It was scheduled yeah. for Atlanta. They up and moved it. I bet you have some thoughts on the subject.
6: Well, one, I remember the all-star game we did have in Coors Field. I don't remember what year that was. 98. What year, 98. Hey, right. You was, get here uh, in
1: 92, and right away we get Major League Baseball, which was unbelievable for this old town. You were there for all the excitement, so tell us your thoughts.
6: Oh, my God. It was so fantastic. I remember, I don't know if you remember the Beanie Babies from the all-star game and how they were perceived to be super valuable. I remember saving them for my kids, and uh, look, one thing ab- about the Coors field and the whole revitalization of Lodo and the kind of passion for baseball, I loved that about Colorado, and we had such a great sports department with you know Tracy Ringlesby and Norm Clark and uh, Barry Forbes, the sports editor, and baseball was a a huge part of the Rocky Mountain News, and Jack Etkin was the other baseball writer and of course Litwin came when Litwin Mike Litwin came to Colorado he came as a sports writer initially right. and uh, a sports columnist and you know one thing about Colorado is the passion people have for whether it's the Avalanche the Rockies the Nuggets
1: Can I just interject the Nuggets are going to win the NBA championship Jokic is the MVP Sorry to interject, but I want that on the record. I've been saying it for a while, but I'm more convinced than ever. Keep going.
6: He is wonderful. I mean, he is an incredible talent, right? And Correct. That would be wonderful to see. The Nuggets. I think the NBA is just so competitive. I I just don't know. I think injuries so affect. Yes. Who's going to win? So you you just don't know. Depending, you know, I happened to fall in love with the Warriors when I moved here because the way front runner. Steph.
1: No, I love well, I those know, guys. But, I mean, no, that, guys. I no you know it, it, it was, was all ordinary,
6: yeah, The reason I loved them is they were playing for fun and for the beauty of the game, the way they moved the ball and the level of assists and the sort of the motion and the lack of you know isolation play. I just really loved that. I loved watching it, it remind me when I grew up in Canada. The Montreal Canadiens were the team that I really loved. And they played hockey in a way that in the same way that the Warriors played basketball. They were just beautiful on ice. And they 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 really played as a team. And, and that's not saying anything against the Nuggets. But you, you know what I'm saying? I just oh, love I that. About-
1: and basketball is the ultimate team sport, maybe hockey. I don't understand hockey, but. While we're on the subject of Denver and the NBA without getting into too many X's and O's, I used to say that Denver would go nuts if we ever were in an NBA Finals. It would be exhilarating, like a World Series. But now I'm not so sure because everything is so partisan. And if you listen to right-wing radio and Fox News crowd and further to the right we're going to boycott the NBA. We don't like the NFL. We don't like Major League Baseball, moving the game to Denver. And it's like, wow, you're cutting off your nose to spite your face. And the other thing is, why don't you pay attention? Baseball and sports, they've led many times before on political and racial issues. Maybe you should pay attention.
6: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm with you. I mean, I'm glad to see the players and the leagues taking ethical and moral responsibility seriously, I guess is is what I would say. And you can't just stand idly by and pretend nothing's happening in this country. And I I admire people like LeBron James, who's standing up and saying, I'm going to work for the right to vote and that all people can vote. And
1: I love that. And when the NBA did that in the bubble, to me, that was a big deal. And guess what happened? More people voted than ever before.
6: Yeah. So I'm all for that. When they're on the floor, they're playing basketball, but they're human beings and they suffer the consequences when they make mistakes in life. They should be free to express their values. And I admire those who are willing to go out on a limb. They're not trying to hate anyone or take away the rights from anyone, they're trying to encourage freedom and openness and, and participation and opportunity. And I, I'm I'm all for that.
1: I totally agree. And when you get down to the case in front of us, what happened in Georgia, there's more revisionist history. Oh, Georgia is no more restrictive than Colorado. Did you hear Jen Psaki bat that one out of the park when
6: you
1: yeah. see Called, but but the bottom line, and this gets to the point you made beautifully with Brian Stelter on reliable sources. How should journalism handle this controversy? Because for me, it comes down to this simple fact: Donald Trump told a big lie. He started it before the election. He thought he was going to lose. That the election was rigged. He focused that on a few states like Georgia, where he made a call to the Secretary of State and said. You got to find me this many votes or you might get criminally prosecuted. And then after the election which he lost, after January 6th which he inspired with the big lie, the Georgian legislature with a bunch of yahoo sponsoring bills to do exactly what Trump wanted done, including taking away authority from the Secretary of State who stood up to him, and they passed that law and they expect the rest of us not to notice. Come on now. Isn't that what this is all about?
6: I think it is. I'm with you 100 percent. And and I think this attempt to say that Colorado and Georgia's laws are basically the same. is just so unbelievably bogus. And I think, you know, Daniel Dale at CNN does a good job of fact checking. And, you know, you just read all the various fact checks and it's just it's not true, but that that they're the same. And you're right about what they did in georgia and it's really devastating to see that you know we're almost 250 years after the founding of this country and we still have we have a party that appears committed to depriving a certain population black minority population of the opportunity to participate fully and to express their rights fully by voting. And, you know, that's just outrageous. And it's a terrible commentary on where we are as a country that we have people in leading positions, including the former president of the United States, who want to normalize that and want to make it seem like that that's somehow you know, just acceptable. And it's a source of great anger for me. And just to give you an idea how, how, how far, I'm still a registered independent. I've been a registered independent all my life as a journalist, but I'm no longer working for a news organization. I worked for the Biden campaign during the last election because I felt that we as a nation could not stand another four years of President Trump or of a Senate controlled by Mitch McConnell. And I did everything I could because I did not want to wake up in the morning after the election and think I didn't do anything. And now here we are as a nation stuck with people who, you know, I I don't believe have the best interests. That's a very moderate way of saying it. Uh, Right. And with
1: no respect to Rush Limbaugh, I'd say ditto. That's why I do this podcast. I see a big danger. And I don't think it's gone. I think Trump is still alive. Trumpism is still out there. It's a real thing. I supported Joe Biden. Biden has made some mistakes in attacking this Georgia law. He claimed that the polls were going to close at 5 p.m., he got stuck on the water and pizza thing. Well, yeah. you know, I can understand laws against electioneering. I don't think anybody should approach people in lines, but there shouldn't be lines. They should vote by mail right. or use drop right. boxes like civilized countries do. So, I, Like I think, civilized
6: states, like Colorado. Like I've right. seen the pictures of Colorado voting. I mean, Colorado voting is very effective.
1: It absolutely is. I know what you would do to try to get to the truth on things. And there were a couple of doozies where our paths crossed. And one of them was a guy named Ward Churchill, where the Rocky Mountain News really went to great length to find out whether Churchill was the man he said he was and whether he should be retained by CU. What a fight that was for the Rocky Mountain News and for... Kaplan and Silverman back in the day, what are your recollections about that and are you proud of the journalism you did there?
6: I am proud. I'm proud of the people that I worked with that had the determination and the courage to get to bottom of things. You know, people have this idea of journalism that comes a lot from television news and I think there's great journalists on television but too often they think that reporting is putting a microphone in front of another person you know and asking a newsmaker you know for their opinion or what happened and everything and the kind of work we did related to ward churchill for example just requires an extensive amount of legwork and it and it's it can be tedious and difficult and so a a lot of journalism is a lot of great journalism is very unglamorous and and I think those kinds of stories are examples of it. I felt that we at the Rocky tried to take on issues that were important to the state and to the especially to the front range and and really you know pick pick our fights and really dig into them deeply and of course we made mistakes or didn't understand things and the city changed and we had to learn to change more as well. And, you know, one thing, Craig, I remember when I became my managing editor, I, I believe like 1995, we met with Native American leaders and they were still upset and understandably so about the Rockies' role in the Sand Creek Massacre and the way it wrote about the Sand Creek Massacre, which is a very important historic event in Colorado's history and at the time I didn't understand how they could think that we were responsible and that we needed to atone for it but I look at it today and I look back on my role and I really wish for example that that I had seen fit to sort of apologize for the acts of my predecessors even if I had no ability to control them and they were in a different time and a place but that we needed to acknowledge the – and I think we did to a certain degree. But, you know, there's things – so all I'm bringing that up to say is, do we make mistakes as journalists? Did we make mistakes at The Rock? Yes, you know, and there are, are there things I wish I did differently? But the core of, say, the Ward-Churchill story or other stories like that, I think The Rock is spirit of. We're going to go to the ends of the earth. We're going to go as far as we can, as accurate and as knowledgeable and as and, and to expose the truth to our absolute best of ability on matters that really mattered. Right. That really were important. Right, like and whether I, and this I, big
1: kid from Peoria, Illinois, was actually a member of any legitimate Native American <laughs> tribe.
6: As as do know, I do know. I don't. Yeah, I don't know where he is today. Right. I have, Last I,
1: have... I saw, he was living in Georgia. Speaking of oh Georgia, my... and we're speaking wow. of Georgia a lot. Do you remember where the yeah. where the Ramsey family came from? Who located yeah. in Boulder? Yeah, from Atlanta, yeah. Georgia. Yeah, that was another big deal for the Rockies. Sean Benet, I think at one point I might have referred to your publication as the Ramsey Mountain News.
6: Yeah, because well, at that time it's interesting that you bring this up because i've been talking a little bit about john vinay and in some ways that was a really horrible because we were asking a very basic question and i remember one of our reporters in particular really took an un, i think an unfair beating because it was the newspaper was asking the question she was the reporter on it and she's a good reporter lisa rickman we did a story called I think it was either the headline on the front page was something like, are they innocent, or could they be, you know, something, I think it was something as simple as that. And it asks the fundamental question that it should be part of our system, you know, of justice. And, you know, you know more about it than I do, but you can't assume that people are guilty. And, and we still don't know who killed John Binet, right? I mean, and sometimes you're going to do things as journalists where you're asking a question where people do not want anyone to ask that question and maybe that's when you should ask it the most that happened with columbine by the way and it could happen with this boulder shooting because it's really painful to ask some of the questions take about columbine law enforcement lied about columbine right they there were they were lied and 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 they took it then they took a defensive posture as did the school district the school district refused to engage with the public sheriff john
1: stone DA, Dave Thomas.
6: right? Yeah, it was it was outrageous. Right. And, you know, that is devastating for the health of a community. If law enforcement lies, it's one thing to say nothing. It's one thing to say I can't comment. It's one thing to say I'm not going to comment. But when you spread a lie that has such pernicious effect and that clearly um, happened in the in the case of Columbine. Right,
1: and think about Jean Benet. Think of Alex Hunter after the grand jury was disbanded. And we did not find out until decades later, thanks to a former Rocky Mountain News guy, Charlie Brennan, that the grand jury had voted to indict.
6: And see, that's see, that's again an example. I mean, Charlie is a great reporter. I don't think he's working the same way today. I'm not sure, but he was like, one of our lead reporters and certainly did extraordinary work on the John Bonet story.
1: He definitely did. He co-wrote or maybe wrote most of perfect murder, perfect town with Larry Schiller.
6: I know that's right. He took a leave to do that book and he, he, he appeared and was very professional in his appearances on CNN and in other public venues in talking about the story. He was a great representative of the Rocky mountain news.
1: He was constantly on with Larry King. I only did Larry King a time or two, but I was on Geraldo talking about Sean Benet. But if you remember, the late Larry King loved Charlie I
6: Brennan. do. And for good reason, because Charlie right. really, he really knew the story. He was really even tempered. He Charlie was an example of how a journalist can appear in, in a public space and not compromise, I think, the integrity of his re- continued reporting on the story. Charlie was really good about not going beyond what he knew and could report. He was not a speculative type of speaker, and he didn't, he didn't make huge, crazy leaps, but he was really knowledgeable and could speak with, in, in great detail, and he had a great grasp of the detail. And that's like a tricky line to walk, Mm -hmm. but Charlie was able to walk it.
1: Yes. You had so many great reporters. And uh, I feel sad for many of them because journalism dried up, as did the Rocky Mountain News. What a war you fought with the Denver Post. But in retrospect, was the end of the Rocky inevitable? Could you have done anything to save it?
6: I don't think Denver could have supported two independent newspapers nor any longer could it support under the JOA sort of two editorial newsrooms with combined business operations. So I think what would have been better for the community was, I think personally, was trying to create a single great new news organization dedicated to the new era, which the new era was digital. By 2009, there was no confusion about where, in my view, there was no confusion about where journalism was heading. I mean, I went to a digital only news operation after the closing of the Rocky. You know, and if we had taken hard decisions and been much more thoughtful about the news organization that could have been created from the wreckage of both those newspapers, I think it would have been much better ultimately, but that can't happen. But you know what? I think you should know and that the listeners in Colorado should know I see Colorado as a hotbed of innovation in journalism and there's all kinds of exciting things happening and it's sort of like after a fire if you you, you sort of use the analogy of the rocky closing as a sort of a forest fire all these grasses are growing and we're seeing like collaboration like we've never seen before in colorado and we're seeing new organizations come in i mean just recently you know axios opened a colorado newsletter there's a daily podcast right they have a daily newsletter
1: and you're leaving out the hottest news outlet in Colorado, one where I am columnist at large, the Colorado Sun. I'm really proud yeah, of no, my association with them.
6: I agree. I mean, I think the Colorado Sun is the leader in all of that. I mean, it, it. you absolutely should be proud. And I'm really impressed by what they've done. And I would say also that I think Colorado Public Radio has tried to assume a more call it aggressive or yeah. assertive role as an important news source for Colorado, which, and I think they have unique advantages. So I think there's so much exciting happening in Colorado. And I didn't even bring up like the Denver Gazette, like who knew that like that, that was going to, the the Colorado Springs newspaper was going to open a Denver arm and and have this digital newspaper that I guess is what they call it. I do think you're living in a hotbed of journalistic innovation in a way that many other communities are not seeing.
1: Right, but I love the newspaper war. And I loved it when Sue Lindsay and Howard Pankratz would compete to see who could cover a trial better. That was good. And then what a competition you had over sports, et cetera. But for me, the glory days was toward the end because I was privileged to have you ask me to write a column for every day of the DNC and I was on the Barack Obama side and it was wonderful. What an exciting time that was. Was that one of your highlights, the
6: DNC? Absolutely. That was an, that was all, I, I would say that was the peak. If you really think about it, for one thing, it was a historic convention And we had sort of emerged with a lot more digital skills and were really prepared to do some amazing things. For example, we had Emmy Sprengelmeyer move to Iowa and write a blog and newspaper. He wrote a daily blog out of Iowa about the Democratic primary in Iowa. And he lived there for, I think it was like a year. And so we really gave people a sense of what it took to get to Denver, how much work went into the fact that Barack Obama was on that stage in Denver. And I was really proud of what we did. And I remember one thing that was amazing. uh, There was a George Kahanic photo of an arrest during one of the protests. And I think it got 340,000 page views in the first day. Wow which for us was just extraordinary like we hadn't you know seen that kind of track like we were we were just moving uh, we were elevating on the internet in a way that we really saw it coming to life at that time and and i feel like we had a very innovative web crew under mike no and i mean we were live streaming all this stuff we did a documentary we did an instant documentary out of the democratic national convention i don't know if you remember this but we literally published a, like, 12-minute film on Denver's convention, the historic events in Denver. I'd say it was 24 to 36 hours after Obama's speech. You know, so we did things that were really extraordinary for us as a news organization. And afterwards, of course, the election was historic, and that was great. But, you know, when we were put up for sale, and there was a lot of uncertainty, and And I learned one thing I really learned from that that maybe your listeners would benefit. You know, know, I didn't realize that when your job is in jeopardy, it's not just your job that's in jeopardy. So many people are connected to your job, and so many. And so I really saw the cost on families and on individuals that it rippled. So it wasn't just the 200 people in the newsroom and the many others, the dozens of others in production and other departments. It was their mothers, their fathers, their sisters, their brothers, their spouses, their children, all of whom took value, pride, importance in the relationship to the Rocky. And So it was, it was um, a massively troubled time, that, those final months, and very difficult. People did great, but it was hard.
1: Right, but it was inevitable.
6: It was inevitable that one of the papers, and it's only sad to me that, and and I don't speak poorly of the journalists at the Denver Post or anything, but the ownership of the Denver Post, for the Denver Post to become what it has become today, which is... aldine Capital. Yeah, it's, just, it's a terrible company. You know, they're vulture capitalists, and they've gutted the journalism, and And I don't believe that a regional newspaper in a vibrant city like Denver with the great economy and the educated workforce and people who are passionate about the place, I don't believe it has to be as as weakened and as sapped as the Denver Post was by these owners who just want to take the bucks out of the paper.
1: A lot of us would have preferred the Rocky win that war. But the bottom line is journalism has undergone fundamental change, and that's just part of living. We all have to deal with it. Certainly practicing law, there have been a number of changes. But I want to go back to your origin story, because I teased it at the start, and I've been to a lot of presentations. I had no expectations when I came to see you at Road of Shalom but you were revealing something that you had not talked about a lot. And I'd really be honored if you would tell that story to my audience.
6: Well, thank you, Craig. It was nice of you to come to that night. I think that was the American Jewish Committee put on an event at Road of Shalom, the synagogue where I was a member. And it told the story of my family, which is too long to recount here, but I'll try to do it in a brief, but in a hope meaningful way. And which is that my parents were refugees who fled post-war Hungary for Austria and ultimately ended up accepted as immigrants to Canada. And they lived through World War II under a variety of trying circumstances. And when they came to the New World, and I think this is what you're referring to when you talk about my talk, they wanted to leave the enmity and hatred of the old world behind, and they never wanted their children to experience what they saw and experienced as Jews. So they basically, we were part of the immigrant generation that wanted to completely merge into, you know, that call it North American society, Canadian American society, and it was only when I was a teenager that I learned that my family had Jewish roots, that that had Jewish passion. Now I know much, much more about it. In fact, I know I have a little story I'll share with you that's new. And so I had to come to terms as I was becoming an adult with what was my attitude to my family's heritage and how was I going to live as an adult. And I felt that it was important to the memory of my own people and to the continuation to sort of an unbroken chain to maintain and restore the Jewish traditions of my family.
1: I'm just intrigued. When you were growing up, what did you think you were? Did you think about religion?
6: No. You know, I was I was talking to somebody about this the other day and we thought we were from Eastern European roots. And that my parents inculcated in us values which were the only thing that cannot be taken away from you is education. Education is the most important thing. And the other thing that is important is to treat other people with respect and not to judge people by their appearances or their religion or the color of their skin or their background or anything like that. And those were the two core lessons. And... um, I'll tell you a story, Craig, since we've last talked, I am, you know, there were many questions in my family. And one of the questions was, you know, I credit my parents with having great, much greater courage than I've ever shown in my life and much greater determination. And the courage they had was to survive and to come to the new world and create a life for their children. And the final days of World War II in Budapest my mother refused to go to the ghetto. The Jews were put into a ghetto in Budapest and from there transported to Auschwitz and other concentration camps. And my grandparents were actually in that ghetto. They were housed in that ghetto, but my mother refused. And I discovered in recent years since we last talked that my my uncle, my mother's, my only, my only aunt or uncle, My uncle, my mother's brother, was transported to Buchenwald and actually died in Buchenwald a month before it was liberated. I also, there was an unanswered question in my parents' lives, which might be of interest. I've written a long article for The Atlantic about this, which is that my parents hid in the cellar of a house in Budapest in the final days of the war in December and January, December 44. And they hid with an escaped French prisoner of war who was a doctor and his Jewish wife who he married in, in Budapest. They fell in love in Budapest and he actually married her there. And and my parents never knew what happened. They survived the war and they basically saved each other. And it's a long story of how, but they saved each other and they survived the war and they never found each other again. Neither knew what happened to the other after they parted ways literally parted ways in Budapest in early 1945. And I found the woman who my mother and father had hidden with, and she she and her husband had gone to France. He had taken his wife to France. And I view myself and my brother as survivors of that cellar, like there's children who are only survivors of that cellar, who are only here today because my parents and this other couple who hid together and then helped each other, survived the war in that cellar and both had families, although they never saw each other again. And we reconnected and I became friends until her death of the woman who hid with my mother. So it was a very meaningful connection for me that to sort of connect these bonds and to recognize that that one moment in time was the Riskiest, most dangerous moment for my family, but also the moment that made possible through my parents' courage, the fact that I'm able to be here today and that I have my own children.
1: It's just extraordinary. And what I took away from Road of Shalom was your parents who suffered so much during the Holocaust, the trauma, oh my goodness, Budapest, right in the heart of it. And then They don't really get liberated. Russia comes in, and then there's the Hungarian revolt in '56. And throughout their lives, your parents said, what good does it do us to be Jews? It's terrible. We're going to start a family. And why do we even have to tell them that they're Jewish? It's caused us nothing but misery. And as I recall your telling of the story, they even said, we're going to get as far away from the old country as we possibly can. That's why they didn't go to Montreal. They went to British Columbia. Am I right?
6: Yeah. Yeah, you're right. They went all the way. They went to the last stop on the train. And in fact, there's some continuation of their story in me being in San Francisco, because actually their dream was to come to San Francisco. But there were quotas to enter the United States. And even though they had an uncle by marriage in San Francisco who had signed an affidavit that he would support them coming to San Francisco. Because of the quotas for Hungarians, they could not get into the United States. It would have taken years and years and years and years and years. And so they went to the nearest place, which was Vancouver. And once they discovered how how good life and how much they loved it there and how grateful they were for how they were received in their new country, they never continued. But So I have ended up in the city that my parents imagined living when they tried to leave Europe and come to the United States.
1: And you are an outspoken, proud Jewish man. So how did that journey occur?
6: It's a long story. It it occurred because I didn't feel you could deny the truth of your own identity and that hiding the truth led to all kinds of problems and i understood their response and i understand it much better today but i didn't feel that that was the response i wanted to take to the holocaust that instead i wanted to survive and be able to live as who i was and not have to hide who I was and and to understand who I was and so we disagreed about that and it was a source of tension between us and just so you know like when i was 18 years old i actually went to israel i moved to israel i knew nothing and i ended i landed on a kibbutz that was founded largely by hungarian holocaust survivors it was so uncre- it was completely by chance founded by Hungarian Holocaust survivors. I studied Hebrew there, lived there for six months, and I thought I would try to go to university or make a life in Israel. But I realized when I was there that the language barrier was too much. I was so far from home and family that I just couldn't do it. And I came home, but I came home with a different approach and sort of a different view you know, on my life. And it continued on a path that marrying a Jewish woman. There's all kinds of crazy stories related to that. I don't know where to start, but one is just, you know, recently this is last year. I was contacted on January 1st by an email that came out of the blue from Hungary. And it was saying, are you the John Temple who Submitted this document to Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust museum and sort of research site in Jerusalem. It's a fantastic organization and museum. And about this individual who was my uncle, uh, Laurent Stein. And but I had submitted it 20 years previously, but they found me, and and it turned out that this young woman who was in her mid 30s and spoke English was the granddaughter of a woman who was my mother and uncle's cousin and who knew my, is the only living person I've ever met other than my parents who knew my uncle. And actually it turned out, and we've become, we've been sort of connected and the families have connected, the two families have reunited. It's led to all kinds of discoveries it turned out that this older woman who's in her early 90s in, in Hungary, still alive, she had been in love with my uncle and had hoped that he would return from the war because they thought people went to work camps and wow. things like that.
1: Say his name again.
6: Laurent. It's a very unusual name. It's like a version of Lawrence, I guess. It's L-O-R-A-N-T.
1: Well, that's cool for you to pay tribute to your uncle, Laura. And I know that the story has a happy ending, especially today. You've gone on to have beautiful children and now post-pandemic, a reuniting. It must be yeah, really
6: yeah. good. It's amazing. I mean, I have found the other thing that was through this connection in Hungary, I discovered that there were members of my family who came to the United States in the early 1900s who were cousins of my grandfather, but nobody ever spoke about them, but there were Steins that came to Ohio, these two brothers who came in the early 1900s, and I've connected with a whole other side of the Stein family that lives, and we had a, a reunion on Zoom not too long ago where all of us are connecting, and actually part of that family lives in Boulder, Colorado. I didn't know they were there when I lived in Colorado, but Part of my family is actually living in Boulder, Colorado.
1: I'm so glad that you reconnected with that part of your heritage. And did your parents understand that? And
6: yeah, they did. In the end, I mean, I think it made them uncomfortable, probably until the end. I think they also appreciated that I valued who they were and that I didn't reject, like that I really appreciated. What they had done, and that I've appreciated and valued who they had come from, and one thing I've done for my family and for my children is, I've I've sort of written a personal story for the family. It's not meant to be journalism for a larger audience or anything like that, but if they want to know where they come from today, on all fours on through through both my parents and through through my all four of my grandparents. I can go back 200 years and tell them who, where we came from and who, and who, and who did what and, and a little bit about the contribution that some of us have made and also the struggles. You know, one thing when you look back at your family that I think is really important to recognize is life was really difficult and it was really limited for a lot of people. A lot of children died early a lot of women died in childbirth you know life was a, and 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 the opportunities for us as as Jews and because of the time they were very limited in so many respects right i mean there was only so much you could do and one of the things my parents did for me and for us and for my children is lift us out of that and make it possible You know, for a kid who grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia, and I've worked at the Washington Post, I've been the editor of Rocky Mountain News, I've been I've worked with all kinds of incredible people. And you know, they made that possible by their willingness to lift themselves out of the world they were in and and try to give their children a better a better world. And I can see how my world is so different. From the limited world that so many of my relatives and ancestors i mean direct ancestors had not so long ago whether and so the, i we definitely were close and had a very loving relationship, i feel
1: you're a great family man and you've given me a lift from your top of the hill in San Francisco. you've done pretty <laughs> good for yourself. I'm going to let you get on to your family and that reunification that is so great after this pandemic Thanks. situation. Yeah. You've revealed your age, so I take it you're double vaccined.
6: I am. I'm fully vaccinated to the point where we actually had other older friends who came over earlier this week on Tuesday night and we had unmasked dinner in our house and we actually right. hugged. It's great it was wonderful. It was wonderful. And I'm hoping in the not too distant future, to, you know, may, a certain, maybe by the end of the year, certainly early next year, to be able to travel again and, and visit with some of the family. That
1: Well, I submit this. You are a journalist through and through. Thanks for spending so much time. And you've created 200 years of history for the Temple family. I submit that the hour you've given me, that's the beauty of podcasts. Put it somewhere where your grandchildren can find it, because it made a record for how you were feeling in April 2021. And I'm privileged, my audience is, to be the recipient. Thanks a lot, John.
6: Thank you so much, Craig. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. It's really great to catch up. And all the best to you.
1: All the best to you. Take care.
6: Thanks again. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.
1: Hey, it's my honor to talk to you about the Colorado Hawks. This is a good program helping kids, underprivileged kids, kids with dreams of playing sports, kids who could use help to go to college. The Colorado Hawks produce high-level athletes in boys' and girls' basketball and girls' soccer. The program prides itself on keeping kids off the streets, helping underprivileged youth in opportunities they might not get otherwise. Most importantly, the Colorado Hawks produce an affordable program that has never turned an athlete away due to expense. The Hawks love Nikola Jokic just like we do and currently have a t-shirt selling fundraiser with 100% of the proceeds going right back into this program. Head to Jokic for MVP, or if it's easier to spell, and it is Joker for MVP, J-O-K-E-R for MVP, Get a great high quality shirt that says, you guessed it, Jokic for MVP and help a great organization at the same time. Let's come together to support a program that has helped to provide so many opportunities for Colorado's young people. That's Jokic for MVP to buy a shirt with all proceeds going to the Colorado Hawks organization. Thank you. Gosh, I had another great week practicing law. So many good results for my clients. That makes me happy. If you'd like to be happy, give me a call. 303-861-2800. 303-861-2800. I'm getting good at this. Give me a call. 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for your problem or case, I bet I know the right one. And I will tell you who it is. Thank
0: you.
1: Uh, LLC.com.
0: Now back to the Fred Silverman Show.
1: Now this was another good show because John Temple's an important character in the history of Denver and Colorado. And to get him on record, he's an interesting dude who's had a remarkable life. Our troubadour keeps going. Every week he's got a song that amazes me. Every little problem did the trick for me this week. And Raj Chohan, thanks so much for visiting with me, letting me turn the tables, ask the questions like you used to grill me on Colorado Inside Out. What a fun show. Thanks for listening. See you next Saturday.
0: Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.